Actually, today we're going to talk about fire, which wasn't planned, um, or which was planned, I mean, but that's just a coincidence. As we look at Leviticus chapters 9 and 10, I wanted to begin um, with this quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. Paul is talking about uh, how everyone will be assessed on the day of judgment, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. He's talking about how he went and he proclaimed the gospel in the city of Corinth, among other cities in Greece, and he established that foundation of Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, coming again. He says, I established that foundation. Now other people are building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. In other words, what you do matters, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, it's like the story of the three little pigs, (laughs) each one's work will become manifest, for the day is referring to the eschatological or the future Lord's day, the day of judgment, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Kind of a sobering passage from 1 Corinthians 3. The idea Paul is saying, he's saying Jesus Christ is the foundation, and then we build upon that foundation as members of the assembly, discipling others, being discipled, pouring in other people. We pour into them with either things that are, are pure, things that are admirable, things that are biblical, if we can put it that way, or with works of the flesh. And essentially, the picture here is that if you're building with gold, silver, precious stones, those are things that are admirable, things that are from the Lord. But if you're building with wood and hay and straw, when the day comes and the wolf huffs and he puffs and he blows the house down, okay? And so that's the idea. Those things will be burned up. In other words, there'll be no reward for those things. Those things weren't done in the spirit. They were done in the flesh, And so we have this picture of fire coming, and it consumes, it also purifies and refines. And, you know, the Bible uses what we call world metaphors, a lot of world metaphors, um, throughout the scriptures where it uses metaphors to establish key concepts that are otherwise difficult to comprehend for us. You know, so for example, throughout the scriptures, God's people are viewed in this metaphor of being a vineyard, right? Right? And God is the vine dresser. We see this idea in in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel. We see it in the New Testament, in uh, in the book of John. We see it throughout, right? You could even say that the vine and its branches are one of the metaphors for the church of God, as it was for the nation of Israel in the book of Ezekiel and throughout the prophets. one One of the metaphors that God uses continually is this idea of fire probably because it's something that was so crucial to understand, or so crucial to humanity, to society, right? Fire is an important thing. It's not as important to us as it would have been to us 150 years ago. 
right? As we were praying with the worship team before, we were reminding one another that, you know, 150 years ago, no church had heat, right? Um, also didn't have a sound system, also didn't have lights, didn't have kids programs. All these things are really modern creations um, that around the world still, I was telling them that even in Spain, um, the, they wore coats inside during church because you didn't heat the buildings the same way we do in the United States, as is still the case in much of the world. Anyway, I digress. Fire is a strange thing. Well, why is fire a strange thing? Fire is a strange thing because it burns through consumables, but at the same time, it purifies things that cannot be destroyed by it. So it burns through consumables, but then it also can refine things. It also can warm. It can comfort. It can mesmerize, right? That's why people have campfires. And the scriptures say continuously, multiple times, that God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. To the pure, he refines. He convicts of sin. He makes them more acceptable. That's what it means to refine. But to the impure, he consumes. Like when the Nazis find the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones, right? And they don't close their eyes, and they get melted. And so those are your two options, be melted or be refined, okay? So learn from Indiana Jones. Leviticus 9. So in Leviticus 9, um, on the heels of last week, we looked at 6, 7, and 8 with broad brushstrokes, the idea that God doesn't just want to be worshipped any old way. God wants to be worshipped with the right heart and with the right truth. And so God establishes how he's going to be worshipped, but he also says, you will worship me. And he doesn't want empty worship. He doesn't want worship with hands and without heart, you know, just going through the motions. That isn't honoring to God. And so that's what was being reinforced in the last three chapters, and then we get to Leviticus 9 and 10, which kind of give an object lesson for why that reality is, is so, so sure and so certain and so important. In Leviticus 9, what we see is there's been a week of preparation for this first inaugural group of priests, Aaron and his sons. And so there's this new priestly order that's being established, okay? And so if you think about it this way, from Leviticus 1 through 8, all that was happening was we spent the first five chapters explaining the three worship offerings and then the two atoning off sacrifices. And then um, Moses spent three chapters talking about how the priests would do those offerings. And then they inaugurated the priests and they had a week of preparation, putting blood on their earlobes, making them wear certain outfits, these sorts of things. And now we get to Leviticus 9. It's the final day. The completion of these seven days is done. And now we get to the point where they're going to actually have their first sacrifices. So having been approved and having been appointed, they now are going to officiate these first five sacrifices and offerings, which we learned about in the first five chapters of Leviticus. And the scriptures make it very clear in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 6, if you want to circle that, that verse or whatever, this is the clear purpose. You say, well, why is God doing this? All of this is for a clear purpose, which God reveals in, in verse 6. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do. Why? That the glory of the Lord may appeal, appear to you. So what is the intention of these sacrifices? What are the purpose of these offerings? 
Why is this happening at all? What is the big, you know, the big show about? This is the point. So that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. See, the intention of these sacrifices is to atone for the sin of the priests, to atone for the sin of the people, and as we said before, to cleanse the camp of ritual impurities so that God's glory may appear to them and therefore dwell among them. Remember, we talked about how sin doesn't just um, make you you know, a sinner who needs to be forgiven, but sin also has a defiling aspect to it, okay? Um, we understand this in our own context, even if it's maybe a little bit more of a nuanced thing, but, you know, we have this, you, when you do something wrong, it's not just like, oh, I did something wrong, you also feel shame for it. So there's a need to be forgiven and a need to be cleansed. And so it's the same idea here that God was going to clean the camp so that his presence can dwell among his people. So in chapter 9, if we were gonna, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but if you were to read that, you would see this is what Aaron does. In accordance with the first five chapters, he sacrifices for himself because he has to be clean before he can inaugurate a sacrifice for anybody else. So he sacrifices for himself, for his own atonement of unintentional sins. I think that was Leviticus chapter 4. And then he sacrifices for his sons, who are going to be the inaugural group of priests. And then he takes some of the blood and he anoints the horns of the altar, purifying the horns of the altar, because the horns of the altar have to be purified before he can do any other sacrifices that involve the horns of the altar. And then he's going to inaugurate the altar itself, and he's going to sprinkle blood on it, because that has to be cleansed as like that initial washing before anything else can happen. Okay? You following me so far? So then he presents an offering for the people. Again, this is all in accordance with the first five chapters. He offers for himself. He offers for the priests. He offers for the people, offers for their sins. And then after that, he goes through the first three worship offerings, which we saw in Leviticus 1, 2, and 3, which we said those first three offerings aren't sacrifices for sin. They're, they're worship offerings. So he has the whole burnt offering, and he has, the whole, he has the grain offering, and then he has the sacrifice of peace offering where they praise and worship God for the reconciliation that they have as promised in the covenant. And so the idea is that having been atoned for their sins, they worship God with thanksgiving and celebration. All right, that's what chapter 9 is all about. And that brings us to verse 23 in chapter 9, and this is what we see. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, let's pause there. So you have to realize this is a big deal, because up until this point, Moses has been the sole mediator for everything that's been happening between this, this king, who is, this God who is king, Yahweh, King Yahweh, and the people of God. But now Moses is going in with Aaron, who's the chief priest, the anointed priest, the high priest, and Moses is essentially passing the baton to the priesthood. And so they go in as Moses, the sole mediator. They come out with the mediator being the priesthood itself. So he goes in and they come out and they bless the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. So how did the glory of the Lord appeal to the people? We see in verse 24. Okay, so what does the glory of the Lord look like? Verse 24, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. 
and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It was like that, exactly like that. I read a lot of commentaries. That's what it was like, okay? Now, this isn't the first time this has happened. Actually, in, if you remember in the, in the book of Genesis, right, there's other stories where Abraham makes a little sacrifice, and then this Christophany, this pre-incarnate um, image of Christ comes and touches the offering with the staff, and it... Whoosh, and it's consumed, right? So this isn't the only time this has happened. You know, you could look to the New Testament and you could say when the Holy Spirit, the glory of the Lord, right? When it comes upon God's church in Acts chapter 2, what does it look like? It looks like fire, right? And so the glory of the Lord comes in this appearance of fire and it consumes the offering, all right? And we don't know where the fire came from, whether all of a sudden it just like appeared or whether it, the fire that was there in the altar all of a sudden just kind of it, it was, got real big, whatever it is. Someone threw gasoline on it, right? but it consumes everything. And so the result is that God's consuming fire, it comes out, it, ev- it like evaporates the burnt offering on the spot. And this display of God's glory and power is so dramatic that everyone gasps, shrieks, and falls on their face. And that's what the scriptures say. That they all shriek, they all yell, and they fall on their face. And they're probably afraid to get up. It's like, who's going to get up first? (laughs) It was Frank. It's always Frank. You can imagine, can't you? And maybe we can, but how overwhelming it would be to be in the presence of such a mighty God. Um, As you guys know, there was that volcano in Tongo, right? Did anybody see the satellite videos of that thing going off? Like you could see it from space and it was underwater. You could see this ripple of pressure happen in the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it's insane, insane. Uh, And that's a volcano. It's not even the glory of God, right? And so you can imagine what this would be like, how overwhelming to be in the presence of such a mighty God. It must have been quite the display. And so whenever you read the scriptures, you want to say, well, okay, what's going on? And then you want to ask the question, well, what's the significance of this to the original audience? Because we're not the original audience, right? So what's the significance of this to the original audience, to the Jews, the Israelites who are standing there watching this go on? And really, all of this authenticates the priestly ministry. It authenticates that God has heard Aaron. It authenticates that God has received not only the atoning sacrifices, but also this worship. And it also authenticates that the baton has effectively passed from Moses, the prophet, to Aaron and his sons as the priesthood. Right. So this is an authenticating marker for the people of God in the Old Testament here for these Israelites as they see God is actually kind of rubber stamping what they just did. Leviticus chapter 10. Here's where it gets saucy. Okay? Now Nadab and Abihu, who are the sons of Aaron, his two oldest sons, they each took his censer and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is, I can imagine saying this to your cousin. 
He says, this is what the Lord has said. Anyone among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. In other words, Aaron kept his mouth shut. Okay? Now, we don't know what happened. We could, we could guess what happened. Later in this chapter, in verses 8 to 11, um, as they're unpacking this tragedy, one of the things that Moses says is, don't drink wine or strong drink and then go into the, go into the tabernacle, all right? And so maybe these dudes were lit. Like, I don't know, okay? Um, maybe they saw how everybody reacted to that display of power, and they noticed there was some pretty ladies around, and they said, well, watch this, lady. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what these guys did, okay? I really don't know what went through their mind, but that's not really the point. The point is that Nadab and Abihu, the eldest sons, they took these censers, and they, they give what it says in some translations, strange fire, unauthorized fire. The consuming fire which positively consumed the sacrifice just moments ago, right? Now, in an act of judgment, consumes the two of the original, what, five priests just moments later. They're conflagrated on the spot. They're immolated where they stand. Done. What's the point What's the point of the story? Well, the point of the story is that God will not allow his holiness to be violated even by members of the high priest's family. And so last week we looked at spirit and truth, and here we see immediately kind of a very real raw object lesson of what happens when you violate this. These men violate the truth. They bring strange fire. Possibly they bring it because their heart is in the wrong place. We don't have enough information. But obviously God did not respond in kind. But Aaron held his peace. In other words, he raises no objection. So is Aaron terrified? Maybe. Is he dumbstruck? Maybe. Does he agree? Maybe. Is he just speechless? We don't know. What we do know is this. He held his peace. Verse 4, And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near, and they carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ethamar, his sons, the other two sons, He said, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. So, Nadab and Abihu, their cousins come in. Their cousins who are not priests, their cousins come in. They put their dead cousins on their coats, and they carry them outside the camp where the unclean things go. And then Moses looks to Aaron and his two remaining sons, and he says, hey, you know, watch your hair, watch your clothes. What's that about? He's essentially saying, you are not allowed to mourn. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, I don't want to hear your, I don't want to see your face go sour. I don't want to see you run out of the tabernacle to go to your tent to weep with your wife who just lost her two oldest sons. I don't want to see it. You stay here and you have a smile on your face because the Lord is holy and you have his anointing on you. That's pretty heavy, right? Even if he knows his sons were idiots, like even if they were drunk and trying to impress the ladies, like it's still really heavy. Imagine being told you can't mourn for your two sons who died just moments ago. They're told that if they mourn, they're going to die because they are the anointed of the Lord. And to mourn the death of such rebels would be an offense to God's holiness, right? I mean, you can use your own imagination to try to picture what this would look like, you know, mourning the death of Hitler after he killed your family in a concentration camp. I mean, use your own imagination to to play this out, but you can understand, even in a small way, what is going on here. Now, you may be tempted in the middle of this to say, man, God is cruel. I think that that would be a natural a kind of question that would pop in, up into our brain. Why is God so cruel? But really, cruelty is not the case at all. You see, if God's response to the strange fire is disproportionate to the offense, then he would be cruel. Right? Cruelty is when we have a disproportionate response to something that's not a big deal. Like you step on my toe by accident and I break your leg. Like that's cruel, right? Okay? But if God is Holy, 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 thrice holy, so holy that in in that Isaiah 6 passage, you know, that they're covering their eyes as they cry out to him. If he's so holy that you cannot look upon his face and live, then offending his glory is far more devastating than our comprehension. And so this isn't cruelty. This is a completely justifiable penalty. Okay, and so listen to me. The problem is not in the severity of God's punishment. The problem is not in the severity of God's punishment. The problem is in our very shallow understanding of his holiness. You see, when we think, oh, this is unbelievable, it's not because God is cruel. It's because we have dumbed him down to be more like us. God is far holier than we can comprehend. So what do we do with these strange passages? Well, what's the point for the original audience? Then what is the point for us? I think that as we reflect on these things, we have to realize that in doing this, God is essentially adding an exclamation point to the day that since this is the first time the sacrifices are being offered on the altar and that Israel is growing to know who this God is, this living God that has called them out of Egypt, as Aaron's sons are disobedient, as they are profane, God expresses his displeasure with a dramatic effect. So if you're the original audience, these are the things that you would be getting out of this. 
The point is that God is not going to allow the disobedience of these first priests to set a precedent for some kind of future disregard for his law. Now, what's kind of ironic about all of this is will it eventually get to the point where people completely disregard God's sacrificial system and law? Yes. Do they get consumed every single time? No. And so we see the severity and the mercy of God in these things. In the beginning, God shows this act of severe punishment to underscore the holiness of his own holiness as well as the holiness of the tabernacle, what will become the temple and the system. But at the same time, we realize that this is really just kind of like he's making an example out of this first group of men. Because what he's going to show from here on out is just ridiculous mercy for the next however many hundreds of years until Christ. And he's continued to show mercy upon mercy since that point in time. So God has a purpose in his response. So for the original audience, if you were there, what would you be thinking? You would be thinking this God is holy. This God is holy. This is serious business. Now, we would do wrong if we think to ourselves, yeah, but that was the Old Testament God who was like kind of grumpy. Jesus is like the cool uncle, you know? And we would, we would be wrong if we did that because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Hebrew says he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of his glory. In other words, Jesus isn't like the chill God in the Trinity and then God the Father is the stern God who's always disappointed. That's not the reality. That Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God the Father is like, you look at Jesus. Now, a similar story to this exact story happens in Acts chapter 5. See, Jesus is crucified for our sins so that we can be forgiven. He's raised from the dead so that we can live forever. And then in Acts chapter 2, he sends his Holy Spirit as the glory of God is then going to live inside God's people. Right? Now, this looks back to Leviticus because in Leviticus they did sacrifices to cleanse the space so that God could dwell there. Well, what happened with Jesus' blood is that he cleansed our souls permanently so that then the presence of God could dwell in us, okay? And so basically God cleansed our sacred space permanently. Then the Holy Spirit is sent into our, our, our sacred space once for all, sealed, right? That's what Paul says in Ephesians. And now the author of Hebrews says that when we sin, it doesn't clean our soul because that's already cleansed. What does the author of Hebrews say? It cleans your conscience, okay? My daughter was asking me to explain this this past week. And I said, it's kind of like marriage that Gene and I are married. And if one of us treats the other rotten tomorrow, or today, the day is still early. It, we don't cease to be married. Now, it doesn't make for a good relationship, but the marriage is still there, right? It's the same kind of idea. The space is still cleansed, okay? And then the way that we interact either breeds a healthy relationship or it puts stress on the relationship. 
So anyway, in Acts chapter 2, God sends his Holy Spirit. It fills people. We see this amazing display of God's glory, tongues of fire. They're speaking in la- they're preaching the gospel in a variety of languages because there's people from all over Europe and the ancient Near East in Jerusalem for the festival, for the celebration of harvest. Okay, and so then it continues, it continues. God is doing amazing things, amazing works. People decide that they're going to sell their property and they're going to bring all the money to, uh, to, to, the, to the early church leaders so they can distribute it to the poor. And there's two people, Ananias and Sapphira, who decide they're going to sell some land. And they go and they bring it to Peter. And they, uh, they lie. They sell the land for whatever, $10 million. And they're going to go and give Peter five. And then Peter says, is this all the money? And they say, yeah, that's all of it. And they lie to Peter. Now, what does that tell you about their heart? In other words, they're just doing this out, they're doing this out of like religious ritual. They're doing this because they want people to perceive how great they are, right? Because Peter's response to them is, wasn't it your land to begin with? Like no one forced you to sell this. And so what that tells you is that their offering is tainted much the way the offering of Nadab and Abihu was tainted. And do you know what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? The Holy Spirit kills them on the spot. They fall over dead. Exactly like happens here when the glory of the God fills the tabernacle at this inauguration of the sacrificial system, the same exact thing happens in Acts chapter 5 when the glory of God comes and fills a new tabernacle, the temple, the people of God. That they are giving this offering not from a place of a penitent heart, a repentant heart, but they're giving it for religious ritual and show. We see the same thing in chapter 4 of Genesis when Cain comes and with an arrogant heart he offers an offering that is not accepted by God, whereas God accepts Abel's sacrifice, and then Cain, because he's mad about it, kills his brother. Again, Cain is just going through the motions as evidenced by whatever happened there. We see this happen throughout redemptive history. There are key, key times in redemptive history when God is doing something new and then when God essentially adds an exclamation, part to re, exclamation point to remind his people that he's holy. It happens with Cain, right? When he gets cursed to wander the earth. It happens here. It happens when the ark is being brought to Jerusalem and Isaiah tries to catch it because it's going to fall and he touches the ark and he falls over dead. Okay? It happens in Acts chapter 5. It's as if God is saying, the all-consuming God is near. Draw near to me, but do not be burned. And so we see two big realities present here that I want to underscore in our final minutes. Um, One is this, to the unrepentant, okay? This is key to understand these things. To the unrepentant, God is a consuming fire. To the impenitent, God is a consuming fire. The same God who consumes the sacrifice in a sign of approval consumes the priests in judgment. As fire warms, it can also consume. Over 30 times in the scripture, God is referred to as being a consuming fire of judgment. So God knows our hearts. He knows what we truly believe versus our religious activities that look like we believe. 
And the reality is that we cannot offer to him proud, arrogant, fake sacrifices that go through the motions. Religious ritual, empty religion, sacrilegious worship is not honoring to God. God is serious about his honor, and he's serious about his glory. The second point is this. To the repentant, to the penitent, God is not a consuming fire. God is a warm, inviting, refining fire. See, through his sanctifying Holy Spirit, Jesus enables us to worship him in spirit and truth and not be consumed, which is why the author of Hebrews says, now you can boldly approach the throne of grace, which was essentially in the holy of holies. The veil has been torn, which is his flesh. See, now in Christ, we are invited to draw near to him without fear because perfect love casts out all fear. See, God seeks those who come to him in humility, ready to sacrifice their pride and lay before him their brokenness because a broken, contrite heart he will not turn away. If there is willful disobedience in your life as a believer— God doesn't consume you. He disciplines you because even an earthly father disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines you with great love. And if such disobedience continues, he, discipli he disciplines with a little more discipline. <laughs> and yes, if the sin continues, he even in his mercy takes you to glory prematurely as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 30. I think we can see this paradox that God is a consuming fire and a warm refining fire. We can see this paradox in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus began to denounce, verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works were done and despite that, they didn't repent. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the works had been done in you in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you, will you be exalted? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, right? That's the consuming fire. Jesus is saying, I went through these towns. I did miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And everybody says, if I just saw a miracle, I'd believe. And Jesus says, you're a liar. And guess what? To the unrepentant and to the impenitent, God comes as a, re as a consuming fire. He is not a weakling. But then immediately after that, beginning in verse 25, then Jesus essentially turns to his apostles, his followers, and he says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children, because such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says this most famous portion of Scripture, Come to me, all who are, 
all who labor and are heavy laden. I don't know if you started reading the Gentle and Lowly book that we gave out a couple months ago. I suggest you do. But those two words, labor and heavy laden, refer to two types of people, and all of you fall into one of those categories. Labor are people who are just trying so hard to please God, and they just feel like they keep messing up. That's labor. And heavy laden are people who are so aware of their own ineptitude, they feel crushed under a backpack that weighs a ton. And Jesus says to both groups, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In that book, Dane Ortland points out, that this is the only spot in the New Testament where Jesus describes his heart. And the way he describes it is gentle and lowly, humble and downtrodden, gentle and accessible to the worst of the worst, the lamest of the lame, the losers, which is what that word for lowly is normally used as. So he's a king of kings who will consume his enemies with fire, but he is so acquainted with the downtrodden and suffering because, frankly, he's been rejected from day one that he will not turn anyone away. What a paradox. To those who are repentant, he does not consume, but he comforts and warms and refines. Look, this is why the gospel is good news. The God who will judge all with severity also went to great lengths to redeem broken, downtrodden losers. Which is good news for me because soy un perdedor. <laughs> it's a little Beck reference for you guys. He invites you not with a sour disposition or an angry stare, but with a gentle call to come and draw near to him. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In Christ, we don't need to fear being consumed. Instead, we look forward to being refined, to be sanctified. As we draw near to him, he illuminates sin in our life so that it can be confessed our conscience can be cleansed, the impurities can be burned away, and we can be made more like our Lord. And so as people who are in Christ, we do not need to fear conviction because he is gentle and lowly and his purposes are good. You see, God is a consuming fire to the wicked, but to those who are in Christ, he is something else entirely he is the warm, refining fire of the master artisan who's making each of us into his perfect work of art. For us, this is not a God for us to fear and cower, but to draw near and wonder. Hebrews 12 summarizes our response in verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so the proper response to this God is humility, 
is a spirit that's willing to not arrogantly tell God what he should get, but humbly ask him what he desires. And that means that we should be thoughtful worshipers and not just worship any old way we see fit. But it also means that we don't need to live in fear because for us, he is not a consuming fire, but a refining one. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We pray that it would be clearer and clearer in our mind. God, so many of the people in this room surely have no problem understanding that you forgive them, but they have a really hard time acknowledging that you enjoy them. So often it's easy for us to think in our flesh that the one who knows us best surely must just be tolerating us. But that's not what your word teaches. Lord, you are the warm, gentle, refining fire. You've already purified our sacred space, and now we can come to you boldly. You know who we are. You know everything about us. And God, we thank you that Jesus fulfilled the law so that we wouldn't have to because we cannot. God, liberate us to walk in a spirit that is humble and contrite and a spirit that seeks truth so that we don't tell you how to be worshiped, but we submit to your word, to gospel-centered, sound teaching and doctrine. We worship you in spirit and truth. In your name we pray, amen. Have a great week. Hopefully we can see you guys Thursday at 6 p.m.